Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I'm hanging out in New York today with Adam Alter, who's the Associate Professor of Marketing at NYU Stern School of Business. Uh, he's also associated with the psychology department, which he assures me is very important because he's not just a marketer. Uh, but you'd probably know him because he's the best-selling author of a fantastic book called Drunk Tank Pink, which we're going to talk about. And he's got a new book coming out as well, which is called Irresistible. Irresistible, that's right. Right, which is not a, a guide to successful dating on Tinder. It is not, but that uh, <laughs> you might get some ideas on that front as well. <laughs> um, it's actually great to meet you. We, we have a common friend who's also been on this podcast, uh, David Epstein. Yes, we do. Uh, who's also a fantastic author. Yes. Uh, and you all go running together, I believe, with Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we run, uh, we, we have a stair workout actually in Brooklyn. There's a set of 100 stairs in a park in Brooklyn. And we try to go, we haven't been going as much recently, but we, we try to go as often as we can. And basically at the end of it, we can't speak, can't move, can't walk. We sort of roll home exhausted. Is this like the secret intellectual cabal at the heart of New York? I don't know. That's putting it a bit higher than I think it actually is. That's giving it maybe a little more credit. When, when we're running, we're also exhausted. We can barely talk. So I don't know how intellectual it is. <laughs> when I first came across your book, Drunk Tank Pink, I didn't even know how to parse the title. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't know there were three separate words and uh, and I was sort of amazed that I actually to discover it was actually kind of more like Eve's Climb Blue. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a it's a good way of thinking about it. it it's a very strange title and I studied naming, so I right. I agonized over the title of the book. So Drunk Tank Pink, the reason I chose it was because it was kind of staccato, it had a rhythm to it and it was something that people liked saying over and over again. Um, even if they forgot what the actual words were, that just the rhythm of it seemed appealing to them. But it is like and drunk tank, drunk tank, comma pink. Right? Pretty much, yeah. The <laughs> drunk drunk tank is a U.S. slang term for a jail cell or a cell that you put someone who's drunk into until they become sober. Right. So it's basically drunk tank, a kind of pink that was designed for drunk tanks. Right. And that's where the story kind of begins. So in the late 70s and early 80s, there was a group of psychologists who wanted to work out how color influenced behavior of school children. And they got some grants in Canada and the US. And they discovered that um, when they painted the inside of a whole lot of classrooms across Canada and the US, the best behaved students came out of the pink ones. So they used blues, they used yellows, greens, and they found that pink, for whatever reason, had the best results. And they found that students who'd previously been very badly behaved were much better behaved after they sat for a few minutes in this drunk, drunk tank pink color classroom. Did and they try red as a color? They, they didn't try red. That was not one of the colors on the menu. <laughs> uh, that, that may not have been as successful. It right? may not have. In fact, in the 40s, there was some research looking at red. And the reason they didn't use red was because the research in the 40s showed that if you put people in a room that's very, very red or you have a red light bulb on in a room, your heart rate rises dramatically and it's actually quite dangerous if you have heart trouble. Right. So you can't surround people with red. And it shows you how powerful colors are in, in shaping not just how we see the world but also our physiology, the way we respond. Is that universal to humans or is it culturally determined? Because I know that some cultures, like I, I'm half Chinese, so the way we see certain colors like yellow is very different to say a Westerner. Yeah, I, you know, it's a very interesting question, and it's a it's a long-standing debate in this area. How much of these effects are 
related to biology. There's just, just a human fact that when you're surrounded by this very vi vibrant red color that you will respond a certain way and how much of it is about culture. Right. So with drunk tank pink, for example, uh, the, the main effect that they've shown with drunk tank pink is that when you surround people with this color, they become weaker. So they, if you give them a, there's a, a device called a hand grip dynamometer. And I actually have one in my office somewhere. It's, it's up there. And if you hold this device, it'll measure how much strength you have in your hands. And is, is um, this just like kind of a technological version of those like yes, hand strength caliper. things? It's just a hand <laughs> caliper that measures how much strength you have. And right. uh, this, the psychologists use this to show that when you are staring at this pink color, if you give people a big piece of cardboard that's this pink color, and they stare at it for a couple of minutes, and then they grab the dynamometer, they will be weaker. They will mm -hmm. exert less force. Um, and one of the questions was, is this, is this because we associate pink perhaps with femininity or with weakness? Or what is it that we associate pink with that leads to this effect? Or is it in fact something biological that when you see this color, it interacts with your physiology in such a way that you become weaker and it doesn't matter what part of the planet you're from, it has this effect. Right. Now, I, I think it's mostly cultural. So for a very long time in the 1800s, even into the early 1900s, pink was associated with youth, but not with femininity. And I think you may have found very different effects then because youth is associated with vigor and strength. And you get these very burly, aggressive males when they see the pink color, if they're thinking femininity, it may change the way they respond. It may lead them to grip the device less hard, less, less strongly. Um, but when I spoke to the guy who did these original experiments in the 70s and 80s, and I said to him, surely this is about culture. It's about the association we have with pink and femininity yeah. or something like that. He said, no, not at all. I'm convinced that's not true because we did this with colorblind people who didn't even know they were looking at pink. And they found that showed the same effect. So you could even put a Kalahari Bushman in there who'd had a few too many drinks that would still pacify That's him. what he said, yeah. I find it fascinating. I'm colorblind, but not so colorblind that I can't see pink. So right. I have a mild form of colorblindness. And I, that, that's, that got me so interested in this effect and the idea that you could shape people's behavior in, in very profound ways with just you know, the change of a color or putting a piece of cardboard in front of their faces. It's like you found a backdoor into people's subconscious operating system. Yeah, well, that's kind of what the book is designed to do. Each of the chapters focuses on one of nine different cues hmm. that are roots to influencing how we think, feel and behave, which I think is very powerful because, um, you know, that's as a general idea, it's powerful. But then you think of all the applications, you know, this applies to how we behave in terms of how morally we behave. Are we doing the right thing? Are we mm. shaping people to behave better in some situations than others? Uh, in business, how we behave, in the law, in medicine. And, and how we design offices, retail environments. Absolutely. I, I think it's every single person is, because we're all responding the same way to these cues at all moments, you know, all the time. It, it applies to everyone in some way or another. And that's what I think I found so fascinating was that this is a very profound effect that influences pretty much every human. Hmm. So what are some of the other effects uh, or ways of programming or, or, or forcing people to respond in certain ways? Yeah, well, a very big one, as I said, I was very curious about naming and I've studied naming quite a lot. Um, and the first chapter is on names. Hmm. And there are a lot of effects that names have on how we interact with the world. The naming of cats is not one of your everyday holiday games. <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. <laughs> um, so I, I'm really interested in what, you know, what features of names shape how we think. One of the interesting ones for me was, uh, it's based on an experiment that was run in the 1930s that if you put two shapes up in front of a person's face, just made up shapes, one of them is kind of curly like a cloud 
and the other one is jagged more like a star and you say one of these is called a maluma and one of the, these is called a teketi and you say which is which now I do this all the time um, in, in front of big audiences and almost every hand maybe two hands will go up saying that the maluma is the jagged shape but every other hand will say no of course a maluma is a cloud it's a soft yeah, uh, that would know, have been my thought. Yeah, that's and it's a very compelling idea. <laughs> Yet this is a nonsense word paired with a nonsense shape. But the, the way we think about words and how that maps onto the visual world is so powerful that we often all agree about what a word looks like, even if it's a made-up word. Hmm. And that, that's a powerful idea because when you're naming companies, when you're naming people, you may want to create the sense that this is this kind of person or this kind of company. You know, it wouldn't make sense to call a pharmaceutical company Maluma because what you're going for there is something much more like Teketi. And if you look at pharmaceutical naming and pharma naming of drugs, for example, they know exactly what they're doing. There's a lot of science behind the naming of the drug to give it the sense that it performs a particular operation. Although arguably when a certain uh, tobacco company renamed itself to Altria, they, they were yeah. kind of choosing a Maluma kind of word, right? They were, well that's, and they probably <laughs> knew what they were doing there as well. If you're a tobacco company, you want to soften yourself a little bit in the eyes of the rest of the world. Right. Um, so that's, that's one example. Um, another really interesting thing about names for me uh, is this really interesting result that came out of hurricanes. And when hurricanes come through, they get names. This is just the way the weather service deals with hurricanes. So, uh, you know, 2005 was a very damaging season in the US in the Atlantic Basin. Mm. We had hurricanes like Katrina and Rita and Wilma. And um, the, the names were basically chosen from an alphabetical list and as each storm comes through we just sample from A then B then C and each year there's a different list and we pick a different name and that makes sense it's it's just so that it's easy to identify the storms but the, the really interesting finding was that when these storms come through people who happen to share an initial with the storm so people whose names begin with a K donate about two and a half times more to Katrina than do other people and people whose names begin with an R donated about three and a half times more to Rita than did people whose names did not begin with an R. Hmm. And the reason is, if you if you ask people to look at the, the Roman letters, so from A to Z, Z or Z, depending on where you are, and you say, which three are your favorites? And you do this in a big room, almost everyone will pick the first letter of their first name, middle name, or last name, or all three. And uh, it's because we really like things that remind us of ourselves. Mentalists have exploited this hack. They absolutely have, yeah. All the time. And people are surprised by this, but it's, it's, it's just how we are. It's very, very predictable. There's another interesting dimension to that, in, in that the idea that um, language has power, words have power, is actually a very old, ancient idea, going yeah. right back to the, uh, the capitalists, mm -hmm. you know, who are trying to look for the original language of creation. Right. Um, I don't know if you could, there's a great book that came out a little while ago called Lexicon by Max Barry. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, its premise essentially was that there's a kind of a primal language that can hack the brain. That, yeah. That, that there are certain words that if you can find them, can you can get people to do things, yeah. essentially. Yeah, well, this is this is the idea. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's, it's as powerful as suggesting determinism, that you say a word and a and particular outcome emerges every time, but it's close to that often. Um, there's some great examples of that, what, what you're suggesting that language shapes how we see the world and interact with the world. Hmm. Um, in the, the word for bridge in German is a female word, a feminine word, and in Spanish it's a masculine word. And when you ask people who speak German for their first language or Spanish for their first language to describe a bridge, you get descriptions that match the gender of the word. So in German where it's a feminine word, people say things like this bridge is elegant, uh, it's it's uh, skinny. They, they use words that sound more feminine. When you ask people who speak Spanish, they say things like sturdy, 
tough things that are more associated with masculinity. It really surprises me because I, I, I always assumed that German culture, which was sort of very pragmatic, would see something like infrastructure as a masculine. Yeah, maybe they would, generally speaking. And yet, because bridge has this, this, this feminine. femininity associated with the word, you get the opposite effect there. So, so do you think it's true that, I mean, there are some thoughts you can only have in, in a certain language? Like, people say that French is a much better language to talk about philosophy. Yeah. And English is much better for technical subjects. And that yeah. sort of has shaped the development of culture in those countries. It's a very long-standing debate. Um, and the, the very strongest form of that is is goes back to the old idea that, that if you look at Inuit people... They have many more words for snow, and right. therefore they perceive snow with many with much more variation and gradation than the rest of the world. I've often thought they just see a lot more snow. Maybe they just see way more <laughs> snow. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's just about quantity. <laughs> um, yeah. So, you know, their strong version of that is that you you only interact with the world in as much as far as your language allows you to to do that, and language is what bounds you. Hmm. And I think that's probably stronger than the truth, and a lot of people disagree with that very strong version. But I think the idea that I endorse and that a lot of people do is that language, at the very least, does shape how you see the world. And that, that's a great example, this example of how people see bridges. Um, the same is true of time. We think of time as moving from left to right in our culture, but there are some cultures where we think of it as moving from top to bottom or bottom to top. And people then, when they trace time, think of time as moving in this different fashion from really? the way we do. Yeah. How, how would you think of uh, time in a hor- horizontal sense versus vertical sense? Well, v- horizontally, we think of it as moving f- from left to right. This is just how we sort of... Like a timeline. Like a timeline. You yeah. always draw a timeline, at least in our culture, starting from the left and ending on the right. And there are some cultures where they don't do that. And so they think of time as a sort of vertical motion. Huh. Um, and that's that can have other effects as well. Um, that, that then feeds into to other perceptions of how the world is changing across time. But we think of time as moving to the right, which is not materially different from moving to the left. Actually, one example that's almost, I think the Incans used to, um, you know, uh, had a language based on knots and, and yeah. they measured time actually in strings. So it's okay, yeah. almost like an example. That's another of, vertical one, yeah. Like of a vertical perception of time. Um, what, what about symbolism? What are other ways that you know symbolism affects uh, our perceptions? Well, I, the thing that I think fascinates me most about symbolism is that symbols are just very powerful vehicles for conveying information. So right. usually a symbol that's very well established... Like a logo is a great example. A logo is a great, very good example. Uh, once you know enough about a company and then you see its logo, it carries all sorts of information and ideas. Hmm. So, for example, when researchers have looked at how people respond when they see the Apple versus the IBM logo. When they see the Apple logo, there's some evidence that they behave a bit more creatively than when they see the IBM logo. And that's because we think of Apple as being perhaps a more creative company. And IBM is perhaps more solid and reliable in some ways, but it's it's also a little bit more stodgy. And so there's this evidence that with Apple, people respond in a way that's consistent with seeing this image because it conveys certain ideas. And those ideas are all embodied in that symbol because we think of that symbol as representing the company. But is a logo an empty vessel waiting to be filled with marketing connotation? Or is it closer to, you know, your colleague's theory of pink, which is it's just sort of hardwired straight into the brain and has an immediate response? No, I would say that it's almost entirely cultural or it's almost entirely shaped by association. So right. 
Um, the best example of this is the swastika, right. which for a very long time was associated with Buddhism and with a number of other religions. Yes. Now the predominant association since the 40s, since the 30s and 40s has been very negative. So you've taken a symbol that had once a very positive meaning. Even though it's even been slightly rotated. Exactly. Uh, so it's not the same symbol. It's very similar though. And when yeah. people see either one, they don't know to distinguish them. They see the symbol and they think Nazism versus you know, say Buddhism or other religions. Yeah, I, I was, it was in India and I saw that symbol everywhere through temples. And, right. and someone explained it was about, you know, the direction of flow of energy in the universe. Mm -hmm. And by rotating it counterclockwise, it was trying to, you know, reverse the universal process. Right. Uh, but I mean, it's such a subtle thing which you don't perceive at a kind no. of a subconscious level. But it's it's the perfect evidence for, for the idea that this is all, you know, bound by context and association, that you can take a symbol that people once thought of as exclusively positive you imbue it with new meaning and suddenly it's very negative. That's true with names as well, which are a kind of symbol. So the, the name Adolf was very, very popular all around the world until the 30s and 40s. Hmm. Barely exists now in much of the world. Yes. Um, and Donald, after Donald Duck came on the scene, much less common name after that happened. When Beverly Hills 90210 came on the scene in France, names from that show skyrocketed. They became and God, very God, God knows what the impact of Donald Trump's going to have on the naming of children. And there you go. Yeah, we're going to have a renewed, uh, <laughs> a renewed effect of Donald. I don't want to comment too much on which direction Let, that's going to go. That's not. Yeah. <laughs> but but I, I think it is terrifying thinking how many people have named their children after Games of Thrones characters. Exactly, yeah. These, these, uh, these sort of made-up names are uh, becoming extremely popular. Um, let's talk a little bit about the new book you're working on, uh, Irresistible. Sure. Because uh, and, and it's, it's all about tech addiction, and, and that, of course, is something I've, I've personally been fascinated with with the years, having spent a lot of time in a career in Japan and China. Right. I think some ways they were countries that were the first to go digital, so they were the first to experience the unpleasant byproducts of, of, of the digital lifestyle. Yeah, that's interesting. I think that's, that's a really interesting way of looking at it. I mean, it, that's really what the book is about. It's about, uh, in some ways, I think it's a natural follow-on from Drunk Tank Pink, which looks at how all sorts of different things around us shape how we think, feel, and behave. This is really a narrower look at tech. Hmm. How has tech shaped us? And the answer is, it's basically changed the nature of addiction in our world. What um, is addiction? I, I mean, I, I always had this vision of an addict as someone who stands up in a meeting and announces their name and, yeah. <laughs> and then explains all the terrible things they've done for the last 10 years. Yeah, I mean, if you ask people what describe the sort of canonical typical addict, that's exactly what they say. They say things like someone at an AA meeting or someone who's sort of struggling to lead their lives and to be healthy and happy and all sorts of other things. Someone who can't stop doing something that's harmful for them. You don't expect them to say, you know, hi, I'm, I'm Mike Walsh and I play Angry Birds for it, 10 minutes exactly, every day. <laughs> exactly. You don't expect that. But that's actually what modern addiction really is. And it's right. been that way for the last maybe two decades or so and it escalating all the time. Um, I think basically the idea is that addiction used to be about substances. It used to be about nicotine and alcohol and heroin and coke and all sorts of other drugs. Now it's about that. That stuff is still there, but that was always kind of a fringe problem for, hmm. for most of history. It's no longer a fringe problem. Addiction is much more democratized now. And if you look at the developed world, most people, and this is especially true in Korea and China, most people who are of a certain age will have at least one of these addictions. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of evidence for that, that between, depending on who you ask, 50 and 70% of the population has some form of tech addiction. And that's a really interesting and important fact to understand because it, once you have an addiction, it shapes your life in ways that are generally not very healthy, obviously. And that's true also for tech addictions. Maybe they're not quite as acute as heroin addiction, for example, 
but it changes your social interaction styles. It changes how social interactions work. If you have children, I mean, if you look at the, say, iPads and iPhones, iPhones came out in 2007, iPads in 2010. If you ask psychologists, they say those were watershed moments because suddenly all the kids who were born around that time have grown up in a world where that is the way we communicate. We mm. use these devices. So it's actually reshaped their brains. It's totally reshaped their brains. The biggest thing is that they don't really know how to interact with people because they spend so much time interacting with screens. Mm. So there are, you know, the American Pediatric Association spends a lot of time releasing guidelines that they keep updating about how old should a kid be before you expose him or her to an iPad or an iPhone. What, what exactly does it do to their brain? Is it their sort of pleasure, reward, uh, systems that are being compromised or, or is it more just their sort of social skills that are being impacted? It's a number of things. So one of the things that happens is it's really, really easy to use one of these things to pass the time. You never get bored. So you never learn what boredom is and you never learn to make your own fun. You never learn how to... You don't daydream. You don't daydream. You don't have to ever be creative because this thing gives you everything you need and it's feeding you in a way that televisions couldn't even do a little while ago. Hmm. So that's the first thing. But I think the most damaging thing as far as I've seen is that you don't learn how to be in the presence of another person, to look into their eyes, to interact with them, to pick up on the nonverbal cues that tell you either this person's angry or this person's happy or this person's nervous or whatever it may be. That stuff's really important. There's actually a fantastic piece by um, Louis C.K., the comedian, where he talks about watching his kids. And his big concern is that, you know, his kids, when they see, when they, you know, if you have young kids who are bullying another kid and they do it in the presence of that kid, they see the way the kid responds and they can see that when you bully a kid, that's really unpleasant. Hmm. There are tears and there's sadness and people get upset. And that's really important feedback because then you know next time you, you think of bullying someone or saying something nasty. You understand the consequences. You know the consequences. But you don't have that when you're using iPads and iPhones and internet chats and when you're on Facebook and Twitter and you just don't know how, how you're affecting other people. Hmm. So you can bully and never get the negative consequences. You never interact with them. So we're, we're sort of so we're creating, creating a generation people. of sociopaths and people with semi-autistic yeah, <laughs> responses. I, I mean, I think the ones who are just using these devices and not interacting with other people, there's a whole part of their social apparatus that never develops and they end up being stunted. But, but you know, and I've heard uh, Jeanette Wing uh, uh, from Carnegie Mellon talk about this, about the, the critical importance of developing children with computational thinking abilities. Mm -hmm. You know, the ability to very natively know how to work with technology and break problems down. Sure. Uh, you don't think there's going to be positives for this generation growing up that in a way maybe they won't be as pleasant at dinner parties, but they'll actually be highly cognitively evolved. But you've just described a robot in effect, someone who can't have fun at a dinner party or isn't fun to be with at a dinner party but knows how to use computers. I think that's fine and I think there's a place for that, but I think there needs to be a balance. And the book is really a call for that balance. Right. It's not to suggest that we shouldn't use tech. I love my iPhone and I love my iPad. And I have a kid who's two months old now and I'm thinking very hard about how much to expose him to these devices. Have you painted their room pink? I, I haven't painted his room pink yet. Um, he's, he's not living in a pink room yet, but we'll see how well behaved he is. Um, but, you know, this is, uh, this is why it's so delicate and why I think it's an important issue that we all discuss because it's, it's not about abstaining from using tech. And that, that's the difference between drug addiction or alcohol addiction and tech. You cannot escape tech. If you want a job, you need to use email. Yeah. You need to use social media probably for a lot of jobs, and that's only going to escalate. 
So we need to work out a way. So you can't go cold turkey. You can't. <laughs> it's just got to be a sustainable re- relationship. Do, do you think tech companies who design applications consciously weaponize the design of their applications to trigger these addictive tendencies? Well, we know they do. Um, we know from people who've either worked there in the past and come out afterwards and say, by the way, this is what my job was. My job was to effectively weaponize the product. So we know from that. We also know that there are a lot of game design companies that will send out code and they will look at, if they send out, say, two different versions of a mission on the game, they will look at which part of the mission was most addictive, where did people spend most of their time. They have a lot of data and a lot of feedback. And they Mm. can say, for example, this mission required you to go and save someone and this mission required that you go and kill someone. Turns out people love killing missions and they'll play them three times longer and they'll keep returning to them to replay them. And then the next time when they release the game, version two will involve more kill missions. Right. By the time you're at the 10th iteration, this thing has evolved to be the most weaponized, addictive version of itself. And we know they're doing this. So I think uh, in commerce, very broadly, if you're sophisticated enough and these corporations tend to be, you are doing this all the time. And it makes sense to do it. You know, if you don't think of it as addiction, you think of it as trying to make the best possible product this is what you end up getting is a product that you can't put down is it all this do they all target the same sort of reward architecture in the brain uh, you know most of these addictions yeah i mean this is one of the things that I, I focus on in the book is is what are the things that make an experience so addictive yeah um there are a lot of different things um you know one of them is open loops that are not yet closed you know, if someone says like to click, you... Like a clickbait. Clickbait's the perfect know. example, yeah. Right. So, it's, for example, you won't believe what number eight says. You know, there's a some sort of thing. and you, Then you have to know, what is number eight? I've got to know, and so I have to click. And, um, you know, that sort of thing, I think, is, is irresistible for people. That's why the term <laughs> irresistible is, is the perfect title for this kind of thing. Because once you've opened the loop, as humans, we need to know what the end of the story is. Yeah. And that's true in every different sphere that we're engaged Nature in. Nature a vacuum. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think we really are at the mercy of these, these corporations that are using these tools to open loops, to give us mixed feedback. You think of gambling. Gambling is basically you have a very small chance of a very, very positive outcome and you have no idea when that outcome might come, hmm. might eventuate. And so you spend your whole life doing this one thing, hoping that, for example, you'll win the lottery. Because if it happens, it is so deeply pleasurable, or it seems like it would be so deeply pleasurable, that you're willing to go through, you know, spending a ton of money, losing time and time and time again. Like a pigeon hitting the button, waiting for the pellet that never comes. And that's where it all started. All of this stuff started with pigeons, where people wondered, when will the pigeon poke this button for food more? And, you know, if you think about the workplace, you think about people getting, say, paid once a week, or once a fortnight, or once a month, and that seems like the way to get them to work hard, to motivate them, that you'll pay them on a regular schedule. And we used to think that, that you, you, you do an hour of work, you get this much money, or you, if you're a pigeon, you peck this thing 10 times, you get this much food. Turns out if you build in randomness and you make it impossible to predict when you'll get a huge dose, a huge reward, for example. So you say maybe we should just pay people on a, on a random arbitrary <laughs> schedule. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you want to get them to do things, that's what you do. You pay them on a random arbitrary schedule. If you want to have a working society, <laughs> you can't do that. But it just depends where well, you are. Well, this is an interesting area because, I mean, there are certainly some companies like Google and other tech companies who are clearly using psychologists to design their workspaces. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, and the way they nudge people with the design of their canteens, like... 
Yeah, and we are we are always as psychologists. My PhD is in psychology, and we are always asked questions like that by companies, yes. big companies, some of the biggest companies. How should we design this thing or that thing or this product? How do we make it maximally re- irresistible? Um, and and we're also going to need psychologists to help us get over these addictions. Right. Uh, we were talking earlier about some of the extreme versions in China. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, right. We were talking about this. That um, no one really knows yet. This is a new problem. You know, it's probably a decade or two old. No one really knows how to treat it. And there are a lot of different approaches. In the US, we have various approaches. The Psychiatric Association is trying to introduce into their manual more and more of these addictions so that they'll be mm. treated like psychiatric issues. Um, you've got clinics. I visited a clinic in Seattle, and there's one in Pennsylvania that treats people in, as inpatients. Um, so we're, we're sort of some of us are medicalizing the problem. And then in, in China, they have boot camps. So they have ex-generals and ex-military men who run these camps basically like a military boot camp. And you parents will take their kids, usually boys, but sometimes girls, and they'll go to these camps and they'll be left there for three months to be detoxed. And it's incredibly harsh. The treatment They're using they electric shock therapy. They use electric electroshock therapy. They use talk therapy, which is obviously the more sort of gentle end of the spectrum. But these kids, I mean, they're kind well, of if broken. It's a, if it's a general given the talk, I think I'll take the electric shock therapy. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> He's, uh, there are some videos of this. There's some really interesting documentaries. Some documentary makers have gone over there and, and been given access. And you, you researched one, a guy who actually was addicted to World of Warcraft, right? Yeah, yeah. So World of Warcraft is uh, it's a massive multi, massively multiplayer online role-playing game. And uh, it's it's very, very compelling, so much so that um, I spoke to a couple of game designers who said to me, we refuse to ever play that even for one minute because just as with a drug like heroin, if we play it, we don't know where we're going to go <laughs> and we don't know that we can afford the time that we'll end up having to spend. So this guy that I spoke to, incredibly high-functioning guy, um, he got straight A's at school, went to a top university, and in university he... He was a little bit lonely and he decided to start playing this game and he he ended up becoming a part of a guild so the way these things work is you go on quests mm. and you have friends all around the world who form a guild with you and you have your avatar and you go out on the quest and you try to to do whatever it is maybe it's to save something or kill something or retrieve something whatever it may be and he found the social aspect of the game completely addictive because he had friends you know these these were virtual friends but they were as far as he was concerned his best friends all around the world. He stopped sleeping. Um, He was a football player. He stopped playing football. Uh, All he did was he'd spend day after day after day in his room playing this game. And the thing is, if you're playing with people all around the world, someone's always going to be awake somewhere Hmm. because of the time zone. So he was awake all the time, sleeping only a couple of hours a day. At one point, he sat for 45 days straight in his room and played this game. And uh, he paid the doorman downstairs to bring up food for him. And so he did not move, and he put on a huge amount of weight. He lost a lot of hair. He became very pale and very sickly. He looked like an orc, basically. He basically looked like an orc, yeah. He, he did not look good. Um, <laughs> and this was a guy who was in perfect shape. He was, a, he was a football player. He was very, very in shape. He ended up having to get treatment a couple of times because he kept falling off the wagon. Um, mm. But he went through treatment at this clinic in Seattle. Um, he's now extremely successful, but he, he went through a very, very rough time. And I, He told me a lot about this game and about how, for him, this was just as addictive as any substance is for any addict. 
So we are all really a high-functioning tech addicts. Pretty much. In some way or another. A lot of us are, absolutely. And this is another difference between tech addiction and substance addiction. You can hide tech addiction. It's, it's sort of sanctioned in society. And if you say, you know, is this person an addict? The answer is no. But if you really look at what they're doing and how they're behaving, they turn out to fit a lot of the definition. Well, Adam, it's been fascinating talking to you. Uh, I'm very much looking forward to your new book. Uh, so thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Mike. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.